guys can take a seat. And we can stay in this attitude of prayer as we open up God's word. Thanks so much, worship team. Um, as I mentioned in the prayer, we're in this series on the book of Exodus. Um, what we're doing is we're looking through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy this year. Uh, we're taking some breaks along the way. And um, it's interesting, I shared before, when you go through books of the Bible, you're forced to kind of preach and teach on things that you typically would not. Um, we learned that a couple weeks ago, and we talked about this, this bizarre story of um, Moses' wife circumcising their son before Moses went back to Egypt. And it's a weird passage, but um, every bit of God's word is useful for, for teaching and for making us into God's image and his will for our life. And so we're going to look today at Exodus uh, chapter 7 through 10. We're not going to read through all of it, but we're going to recount the story of what really the top two things people think of when they think of the story of Moses. And the first thing is the parting of the Red Sea. The second is the the plagues that fell on the Egyptian people uh, that eventually allowed Israel to go free. Um, And so if you want to turn in your Bible or if you have our app, the app is FC Online. Uh, we're going to be, again, Exodus 7, 14 through 10, 29. If you're watching online, first of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, verses will be on the screen uh, for you to look at. They'll be on our app, and if you're here in house, they'll be right behind me. Um, while you're pulling those up, I do have just two announcements to mention. Um, one is last weekend we had an interest meeting for those who are interested in um, just this vision of us eventually starting a school Uh, a burden that we have as a church to um, do our part to raise up our children in the way they should go, um, both in the home, in the church, and in their education and their school. And we had about 30 of you come show interest in that. Uh, One of our assistant pastors, Ladina Doherty, is going to be sending out some assignments to some people who showed up um, to let you know when we'll be meeting again. Uh, Had a lot of people from the community contact me and just say, what can we do? How can we help? Um, and there is some really exciting potential if you could keep those things in your prayers. Um, we're not in a rush to do this, and so just want to be in God's timing. But I want to thank you for coming, and if you're still interested, um, if you could let one of our staff know, we'd love to get you plugged into that, um, even if it means you just would like to send uh, your kids who will be going into school. It will benefit younger kids first before it will older kids. And then uh, because Thanksgiving is this week, uh, means Christmas is in like four weeks. And so, Merry Christmas, and um, Christmas services we have at Fellowship Church this year is going to be on Sunday, December the 19th at 10, 5, and 7. So, Sunday, December 19th, 10 a.m., 5 p.m., 7 p.m., we have Kids Church um, at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m., not at 7. Uh, We'll have different activities and things going on here uh, just to enjoy uh, a gospel-centered Christmas message. if you'd like to get baptized, I know we're baptizing some people tonight. We'll be baptizing people uh, on Christmas as well. So Christmas is a big celebration to celebrate the coming of Christ here. And then uh, finally, in regard to Christmas, the week after, um, December the 26th, Sunday, December 26th, we are not having church. We're just pausing um, to refresh ourselves, um, to honor our volunteers and our staff. That's going to be a, a rhythm we're starting this year that we won't have church the Sunday after Christmas going forward. And, um, but the following week in January, uh, we've got a relationship series coming up just called Relationship Status. And we're going to be looking at different types of relationship from singleness um, to everything in between um, coming up in January. Then we'll get back into the book of Exodus. So with all that being said, here's, here's where we're at in the book of Exodus. What we've done is we've talked about Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh, requesting that Pharaoh let Israel go, specifically so that they could go into the wilderness um, to worship God, when in reality that request was more about their escape plan. And so Pharaoh ignored the request of Aaron and Moses. He made Israel's labor more difficult as a result. And because of the difficult labor, Israel's foremen would go and plead their case before Pharaoh that the work was too hard, And it accomplished absolutely nothing. In fact, what it accomplished was, is it made Israel more angry and bitter towards Moses and Aaron. And so Moses is on the verge of giving up. And God commands Moses and Aaron to go back into Pharaoh themselves after the the foreman had left. 
And so Moses and Aaron, they go back before Pharaoh, and this is what uh, our assistant pastor, Ladina Doherty, spoke on last week. It's where they do their, their snake trick. Uh, Aaron drops his staff. It turns into a snake. Pharaoh's Egyptians are like, no big deal. We can do that too. Their staffs turn into a snake. But Aaron's staff, which turned into a snake, um, eats the staffs of the magicians of Pharaoh. But ultimately, that does nothing for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart hardens yet again, and he refuses to listen to God. He refuses to let the Israelites go. And so today, we're going to look at the first nine of ten plagues um, that come on Egypt. And we're actually going to do this message a little backwards today. Um, This is going to be very Bible study-esque. You're going to hear some things you probably haven't heard before in this account, but I want to make sure we apply this to our lives. And so for those of you who are like, I just wish that at church we could go deeper, this is, this is for you. Um, so question before we even look at the plagues. Why does God send plagues on Egypt? That's probably the most important question. Why does he do it? There are four reasons, if you want to take notes, four reasons for God enacting the plagues on Egypt. Number one, so that Egypt would know that God, um, in the Bible, Yahweh, that Yahweh was God. In fact, back in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh says to Moses, I do not know Yahweh. And so the number one reason for the plagues is that Pharaoh and all of Egypt would know that God is God, that the Lord is the Lord, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only God and the God of all creation and everything. And everything that exists is made through him, by him, and for him. That's number one. Number two. The plagues came to build Israel's faith. All throughout the story of the Exodus, after the plagues, the Israelites talk about how they would recount the story of the plagues and how God put the plagues on Egypt to let Israel go for generations and generations and generations. And here in the year 2021, in the Western Hemisphere, in North America, we are talking about it still, that these stories would be recounted to build our faith. Number three. The plagues were a warning to Egypt. They were a warning to Egypt of what God would do if they continued to harden their hearts. This is what I will continue to do to you if you continue to disobey me and harden your hearts. And you might say, well, what if Egypt would have repented? I honestly believe God would have relented. I believe that Egypt, if they would have repented... God would have relented from sending more plagues upon them, but yet God knew the outcome ahead of time. And then number four, ultimately the plagues came as an act of judgment from God on the nation and the people of Egypt for their sins as a nation. So one, Pharaoh and Egypt would know God as God. Two, would build Israel's faith. Three, they were warnings to let Israel go, and then four, it was an act of judgment. And so these are the main reasons that these plagues we're going to kind of blaze through today fall upon Egypt, but it gets a little bit more interesting. Uh, there's a few parts of Scripture we don't pay a lot of attention to. It's not just for Pharaoh. It's not just for Israel. It's not just a warning, and it's not just judgment. These plagues were also a judgment on and a defeat of the actual gods of Egypt. You ever study Egyptology before? It's actually one of my favorite topics. Um, Looking at um, the Sphinx and the pyramids and the extreme, exquisite architecture and astrological alignment of the Egyptians is utterly fascinating. And if you know anything about Egypt, you knew that they had a pantheon of very interesting gods. Gods that represented all aspects of life depicted by all manner of man and of beast. Um, There's probably not, I know there actually is a lot of nerds here, but probably not a lot of nerds as much that would say like, Pastor Itis loves Stargate SG-1 and their depiction of Egypt's gods. If anybody knows anything I'm talking about, give me a nerd high five after the service. This is actually also judgment on the gods of Egypt. And you say, I thought that Yahweh was the only God. And Yahweh is the only God. He is the only God that created all things seen and unseen. But if you read scripture, you find out that God does not just make things in our physical realm, but God makes things in the spiritual realm. 
And just like we are in rebellion to God, so too are spiritual beings in rebellion to God. This is how we end up with the devil and with spiritual forces of darkness and evil places. This is how we get to demons that we encounter in the New Testament and today. And so you might say, what does it mean that God defeated the gods of Egypt? Well, number one, it may just be figuratively. That figuratively God defeated the gods of Egypt to show that God is all-powerful and that God is above anything that man elevates besides God. And that's true. But I believe this is literal. For example, I believe that these gods of Egypt were literal entities, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Read Ephesians 6.12. These were spiritual beings who exercised regional authority over Egypt and they saw and received worship from its people. Um, look at Genesis chapter 11, 12, 13, uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Deuteronomy gives some more evidence for this. But look at these three passages, or two passages from Exodus and one from Numbers, what it says about the plagues. Exodus 12, verse 12 says this. This is God speaking, talking about the final plague. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the Passover night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And then what does it say? It says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So he says, I'm going to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. Exodus 18. This is Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, speaking to him. He says, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hands of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Pay attention to verse 11. Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Who's they? It is Pharaoh, it is the Egyptians, and the gods of Egypt. And then finally, Numbers 33 it says, on that day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Three times in Scripture, and I can point to you many other references where the actual spiritual forces of evil that exercised false authority over Egypt were actually judged and punished. And so when we go through these plagues, we actually see how these plagues were literal judgments on the very gods of Egypt as well. So let's go through these nine plagues together today. And um, I want you, as we look through these things, as we kind of blaze through these nine things, imagine these things happening to us today. And just be comfortable with the grotesqueness and the grossness and the ugliness and the ooeyness of all the plagues of Egypt. Um, Exodus 7, 14, that's our first verse. It says, the Lord said to Moses, this is when Moses has had Aaron's staff eat the staffs of the magicians. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. By the way, lots of parallels to Moses' mother putting him in the river where the daughter of Pharaoh, this Pharaoh's sister, would have found him. It says, verse 16, You shall say to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. But so far, Pharaoh, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, I love this, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By this shall you know that I am the Lord. How? He says, behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, in King James, stinketh, I think. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. How many of you lived in Salem, I think it was four summers ago, when our water went bad? The water went bad, and we had to go like, to National Guard centers to get water filled up in tanks. And remember when we thought that was the worst thing that could happen to us? <laughs> that was nothing. I want those days again. I want dirty water. And see, here's the deal. Moses and Aaron do this. 
Pharaoh does not listen. And all of the water in Egypt turns to blood, even the water in containers. So that means like even your bottled water would turn to blood. And this here, you say, well, how, what does this have to do with the gods of Egypt? Well, um, there was an Egyptian god by the name of Happy. Not like happy, but Hoppy. Not like Hoppy, but Happy. God of the Nile. Likely a judgment against Isis, the goddess of the Nile. And likely a judgment against Num, the guardian of the Nile. And so the water turns to blood. But the magicians of Egypt are like, we can do that too, food coloring. We can turn the water into blood. And seven days pass, and Pharaoh doesn't budge. He's like, I, I, can, I can weigh this out. It's no, it's no big deal. And so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh again, and they warn Pharaoh, if you don't listen, and if you don't let people go, Yahweh is going to send a plague of frogs on you. And they're like, huh, frogs? And he's like, yeah, a lot of frogs. How, how many frogs? Like, everywhere. Frogs everywhere. And Moses does not listen. I mean, sorry, Pharaoh doesn't listen. So Moses releases the plague, and there are frogs everywhere. Any of you ever seen a lot of frogs before? Like, lots. Um, at Mento Brown Park here in Salem, if you go in August to some of the little ponds in the back, if you go at the right time of the day during sunset, you will see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beady little eyes staring at you while you're walking by, and it's horrifying. But frogs everywhere. Now, this is likely a judgment on Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth. So Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth, now has this plague enacted on her. And so what do the magicians do? They duplicate the prey. They're like, we can make frogs too. I don't know how they did this. But they're like, frogs everywhere. And frogs came from them as well. And the frogs don't go away. So Pharaoh is like, make the frogs go away. And I'll let all the Israelites go. And so Moses and Aaron, they petition God. God makes the frogs go away. They die. Ew, they smell. All these dead frogs everywhere, the frogs die. And once the frogs are all dead, Pharaoh's heart hardens again and says, nah, I changed my mind. The blood wasn't that bad. The frogs weren't that bad. Bring it on, Moses. And he does. And so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and say, okay, okay, okay. Blood, frogs, but if you don't let the Israelites go, I am going to send a plague of gnats on you. <gasps> and as you do, <gasps> gnats are just inhaled. <laughs> But in actuality, going back, Moses and Aaron don't actually warn Pharaoh this time. It just happens. They don't even warn him. The gnats just show up. It should have been in reverse, by the way. Like, the frogs ate the gnats, but no, the frogs died, the gnats come. And this is likely a judgment on Set, the god of desert storms. And now this is a plague the magicians could not replicate. And they actually say, we could do the blood, we could do the frogs, we can't do the gnats, Remember, gnats is spelled G-N-A-T-S, gnats. We, we can't do gnats. And this clearly is the hand of God, and Pharaoh is like, no, it's no big deal. We're not letting them go. And so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh again and say, okay, you thought gnats were bad. What if we multiplied the size of gnats by 10 and send flies instead? And so Moses warns Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is like, flies, no big deal. And so Moses and Aaron are like, you ever seen that meme where Oprah releases bees? It's like that with flies. The flies go everywhere. And this is likely a judgment on the Egyptian god, Uatchit. That's an interesting name. Uatchit uh, was represented by a fly. Now, something strange happens at this point in the plagues where the Israelites lived, uh, typically a place called Goshen. The flies don't touch the Israelites. And so the Egyptians have flies all over them, all over their livestock, but God spares the Israelites. There's no mention of the magicians. We don't even know if the magicians try to replicate the flies. And so Pharaoh says, okay, 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 I'll let you go and sacrifice in the land of Egypt if you can make 
the flies stop. And Moses is like, no, we can't do it in Egypt because if we did it in Egypt, the Egyptians would be grossed out by our sacrifices as if they weren't grossed out by this. And they would kill all of us. And Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, but just don't leave the border too far and go out and sacrifice. And Moses is like, okay, but don't change your mind this time. And Pharaoh says, pinky promise. And the flies go away. And Pharaoh says, eh, I changed my mind. Surprise, Pharaoh's not a woman. Just changed his mind all the time. Um, number five. Moses and Aaron say, okay, okay, okay. Um, blood, frogs, gnats, flies. Um, what if all of the livestock in the land die? And so they warn, all the livestock will die if you don't listen. And Pharaoh says, I, I don't really care to listen. And so Moses releases now a, a literal plague on the livestock, and the majority of the livestock in the land, uh, they, they die. This is likely a judgment on the Egyptian gods Hathor, who was a goddess with a cow head, and Apis, the bull god and symbol of fertility. Now all of the livestock are dying. This is actually an economic crisis as well as a food crisis. But God spares Israel in this. Their livestock in the land of Goshen and likely beyond, for some reason, their livestock do not get the plague. They do not die. The magicians, of course, are not going to replicate this plague because they don't want to lose more of their livestock. And Pharaoh basically says, I don't care. Kill all the livestock. You can't leave. And so Moses and Aaron, they go and they get some soot from a fire and they throw it in the air in front of Pharaoh. And as they throw it in the air in front of Pharaoh, it's like a warning, but there is no warning. All of a sudden, all of the remaining livestock and in particular, all of the people get boils on their skin and open sores on their skin. I know that picture is gross. Trust me, that is the least graphic thing I could find. <laughs> Boils. This is likely a judgment on the Egyptian god Sekhmet, the goddess with the power over disease. A judgment over Sunu, the god of pestilence, and a judgment yet again over Isis, the healing goddess. And it doesn't say here, but it's implied that God does spare Israel from the sores, from the boils. It doesn't say explicitly, but it, it's, it's certainly implied. And it's interesting what it says here. The magicians, the reason why they don't try to duplicate the boils, the Bible says they can't even stand up because the sores hurt so bad. Like, we would try, but this, we, we can't do it. And so Pharaoh says no big deal. We can handle sores, but we're not letting the people go. And things start to get more serious. Exodus 9, verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Here it is again, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And I love verse 16. God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. How many of you are glad that's not why you were raised up? And this is where Romans talks about vessels of honor and dishonor. Verse 17, God says, You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall. Such has never been in all of Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. It shows there's slaves that are not Israelite slaves. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Um, this is likely a judgment against the Egyptian gods uh, Nut, the sky goddess, Osiris, the god of crops and fertility because the hail would ruin the crops, and Set, uh, just like the gnats, the god of the desert storms. Now, I'm trying to see, is Aubrey in here? Yeah, Aubrey, you would be like hopping in your car storm chasing if this was you, going to see the tornadoes and the hail. And I got a friend named CJ who's watching right now, I'm sure, literally a storm chaser. Like You're like, this is the plague that I am all for. So God spares Israel. It doesn't say um, how he spares Israel, but we would assume that because Israel, they heed the warning and they go inside to hide from this hail. And there's no mention of the magicians trying to copy this because why, why would they want to? Why would they want to bring more hail? Now, I think the biggest hail I've ever seen is like the size of like a marble. But if you live in the, in the Midwest or maybe even some places in the South, you might find like softball size hail. Had some friends two summers ago that their motorhome was ruined in eastern Oregon by big hail. So big hail is, is very scary and dangerous. So verse 27 it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Oh, repentance. This time I have sinned. It's false repentance. The Lord is in the right, and my people are in the wrong. What did Pharaoh not say? He didn't say, I am in the wrong. He actually passes the blame and says, my people are in the wrong. He says, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay here no longer. Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. That's reminiscent of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Just like the rock hard, cold ice hail, so too was the heart of Pharaoh. So two more. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Every time until now, it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. Here, God says, I have hardened his heart. I have left him to his own destruction. His rebellion and sin are so great that he will commit even more sin and rebellion as his heart grows harder and harder and harder. This is Romans chapter 1 and 2. I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Remember, build their faith so that they could tell people for generations. So Moses warns Pharaoh, there is another plague coming. And you thought, that the hail was bad that destroyed the crops. There's some crops left, and there's some crops left to be gleaned on the ground. And so God will send locusts. And Pharaoh's servants over here, and they're like, Pharaoh, this is enough. Enough is enough. Just soften your heart and let these people get out of here. If these locusts come, we don't have any livestock. We don't have any crops. The locusts will eat the rest of the crops we are going to starve to death in famine. Interesting, that's what started this whole thing with Joseph 400 years before. So Pharaoh's servant said, this is enough. And Pharaoh says, okay, 
you can go, Moses. And this is something I'd never noticed before. Pay close attention if you've got your Bible open. Pharaoh says, you can go, Moses, but I want to know who you are sending. And Moses is like, obviously, everyone. That's what we've been asking this entire time. Pharaoh says, no, who are you sending? And Moses and Aaron say, we are sending the men, the women, the children, and the livestock. And Pharaoh says this. He says, you can go, but only the men can leave. You need to leave the women and the children here. And the Pharaoh says literally the most bizarre thing. He says this to Moses. You want to take the women and kids? I think you're planning something evil. As if what Pharaoh wasn't doing was the most despicable thing. The reason I bring this up, and this is controversial, I don't really care. The world wants to get rid of men. The world wants to do whatever they will to do with women and children and to manipulate children and raise them up and distort their views on everything. And so if we can just get rid of the men, we can have our way with the women and children. And you've got to see that this was Pharaoh's plan all along. Not this Pharaoh, but his father. What did his father want to do? Kill every male-born Israelite so that they could get rid of the males and just raise up a new generation of weak Israelites who did not know their heritage because Egypt could come in and indoctrinate them to the ways of the Egyptian gods instead of the ways of Yahweh. And it's happening today, by the way. It's what's happening in the world in the spiritual realm. The enemy wants your children and wants to eliminate men from being protectors and husbands and fathers. And women do stand up and do amazing things and are equal in value and worth before God. And women and men have different roles, and the enemy wants to get rid of men, period. And this is what he's trying to do here. And Moses says, no way. You're not keeping our kids. You're not keeping the women. And and they want them to leave so that that way they can go chase after the men and kill them. Not going to happen. And so Moses is like, that's not going to work, locusts. This is possibly a judgment, once again, on Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. There's no mention of the magicians trying to replicate the plague of locusts. And Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Make the locusts stop. Moses says, okay. And he does. He makes the locusts stop. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, my fingers were crossed. And they're gone. And so this time, God brings out the heavy hitter before the final plague. And God tells Moses that he is going to place a darkness over the land of Egypt that is so dark that it can be felt. So dark it can be felt. Have you ever been in that kind of dark before? No light? Not talking like lost in the woods at night. I'm talking like no light, dark, utter pitch black. Pitch darkness. And God says, so dark it can be felt. And God, he actually says, this darkness will last for three days. Oh, you mean like Jonah was in the belly of a fish? You mean like Jesus would be in the belly of a tomb? Yes, those things are actually very related. There's no warning for this plague. And there is no doubt who this judgment is upon, by the way. The God of Egypt. Ra, the sun god. Oh, you think Ra is the head of all the gods? Well, actually, Yahweh is even more powerful than Ra himself. And if Ra is the sun god, Yahweh can take away the sun from everyone, but will allow the sun that he created to continue to shine on the Israelites in Goshen. Somehow, the Israelites have light while the Egyptians have dark. There's no mention of magicians. They don't try. I mean, how do they replicate darkness once it's already dark? It's like, it's dark. Can you do it? Yes, look, we're still doing it. (laughs) Pharaoh says, okay, the darkness is too much. You can go, but just leave your livestock because this is, we need to eat. 
And Moses says, no, we actually need the livestock so we can sacrifice to Yahweh in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's heart hardened. And look at this verse with me, Exodus 10, verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to Moses and to Aaron, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Oh, that sounds like something I've heard before. God says to Moses in Exodus 34, no one sees my face and lives. If anyone sees my face, he dies. And here, Pharaoh elevates himself yet again among among all of the false gods and above Yahweh. And he's like, oh, you look at my face, you will die. So let's wrap this up. Just as darkness would precede the crucifixion of God's Son, just as darkness will precede the return of God's Son and His final judgment upon the earth one day, so too is darkness the final plague and the final judgment on Egypt before the death of its firstborn sons. The darkness would be the final warning before God's judgment against Pharaoh and his people Pharaoh, who was a god to the entire kingdom. And there's a few things that I want to address real briefly before the actual application, because I can't talk about this without covering a couple of bases. Number one, God judges rulers and nations. He does today. He did then. God judges rulers and nations. Entire nations can face judgment due to the actions of their leader. Did you hear that? Entire nations can face judgment due to the actions of their leader as leaders are representatives for their people. And what happens to the leader happens to the people. Leaders are responsible for what and who they lead. That means when a leader sins in such an egregious way that God either disciplines or judges them, it is not God disciplining and judging the people. It's actually the ruler disciplining and judging the people as they are judged by God. Are you following me? So God can judge individuals, God can judge people groups, God can judge leaders, and God can judge entire people groups and or nations due to their leader. Number two, this is what you need to know. Christians are not judged by God. Christians are not judged by God. Why? Because Christ was judged on our behalf. Christ took the punishment for our sins. However, Christians can be disciplined Christians can have the blessings, protections, and favor of God removed from their lives, and Christians can and do and will face consequences due to their actions. However, Christians can experience the effects of judgment upon the nations, upon groups that they live in, and the leaders they live under. If you don't believe that, look at the last 2,000 years of church history Oftentimes, when the world is judged for the sins of the world, Christians are casualties in that. Not because God is judging them, but because they're living in the judgment of their leader. You say, okay, well, if that happens, just like Israel, God will spare me from the judgment of my nation, my people, my king, my president. Maybe not. God may spare you physically as he did with Israel in Egypt, or he may not. Why? Because our ultimate sparing from judgment is in Christ. It's in Christ in paradise and eventually in a new heaven and a new earth free of judgment. So with this in mind, fathers, lead your household well so that they do not live under the judgment if you're an unbeliever, the discipline if you're a believer, or the consequences of your actions. This is why God says he visits the sins of the father on the third and the fourth generation, not because God is judging the third and the fourth generation, but they're experiencing the judgment of their fathers. This is why we must find freedom in Christ from that which plagues us due to our own sin and hypocrisy. This goes for all leaders. Leaders lead well so that those you lead do not live under your stupidity and your judgment in your discipline. Here's the application. God often warned Pharaoh of coming plagues if he did not repent. Pharaoh ignored God's warnings and the plagues came. 
Each plague was collectively a judgment, a warning, and a sign. A judgment, a warning, and a sign of future plagues, warnings, and judgments to come after each one. Pharaoh hardened his heart until it would be too late. But each and every sign, each and every judgment, each and every warning, each and every plague was a chance for Pharaoh to repent. Though God knew the outcome and though God knew how he would use the outcome against Pharaoh, there was a chance to repent. God, what he was doing is God was actually being patient with Pharaoh and patient with Pharaoh's rebellion. Two verses as we close. Here's one, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 13. Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of that water, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished, talking about the flood of Genesis. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is a judgment coming worse than the flood and worse than all the plagues. It is a judgment and the wrath of God for the sins and rebellion of all mankind, including yours and mine, lest we put our faith in Jesus and escape that judgment. Verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. No time to talk about that timeless passage there. Verse 9, the Lord, here's the, the crucial verse. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know who's included in all and any? Pharaoh is. God was being patient towards Pharaoh. Look at the kings of Babylon or Persia who relented and repented and the people of Assyria who repented when they were confronted with judgment. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What was that doom and gloom, Pastor? It, it was actually doom and gloom. Judgment is being stored up for this world. A final judgment of God's wrath is being stored up for this world. Judgments being released in God's timing as warnings and signs for his sudden return. And we can only have so much blood on our hands. We can only have so much blood crying out from the ground. We can only pervert so many of God's creations and standards before enough is enough for this nation, for this continent, and for this world. Matthew 25, the book of Daniel and Revelation tell of plagues, warnings, judgments, and signs as the return of Jesus draws closer. And Scripture warns us of the consequences of our sins, both in the final judgment and in the discipline of, warning and natural consequences in the life of a believer. So each time we see these things, these signs, these warnings, these judgment, these plagues fall upon the earth, we need to recognize our sin. We need to recognize the sins of the world. We need to turn to God. And if you're a believer, you need to turn back to God. You need to repent. And you and I need to be obedient to what God commands us to do. Last verse, Luke 21, 25 through 28, the words of Jesus. He says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, live it up in sin. Right? When these things begin to take place, harden your heart towards God because God is loving and caring and he wouldn't do anything to judge me for my sin. No. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Church, please look around you. Look around you in the world today. Our world is changing radically more than it ever has in the last 10 years than anybody in our lifetime or in modern history has ever seen. It is changing radically and rapidly, and the truth is being perverted and distorted and confused, and people are losing their minds with anger over the Word of God because hearts are being hardened. Look around you. Get your act together. Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Pastor, when did this start? I, we don't even need to go into this. But, but I will go into just one. Just one. I think that what happened on September 11th, 2001, was the beginning of the junk we're experiencing today. We saw the world change in an instant and in a moment, and it is changing radically ever since that day. Say, Pastor, spiritually, what does that mean? I don't know, but I'm telling you, something shifted on that day. And we have not gone back. It's changing and declining rapidly. Look around. Get your act together. Raise your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. And with these plagues and warnings and judgments and disciplines and with God chastening those he loves, you've got two choices. You harden your heart in rebellion or you soften it in obedience and trust. That's it. Harden your heart or soften it. Let's, let's go into a time of prayer. God doesn't warn us because he wants to scare us. God does not warn us because he doesn't love us. He actually warns us because he does. He warns us because he does love us. He warns us because he is right now being patient with my sin. And it is not God's will that you or I perish, but that all would come to repentance. That word all means all. It means everybody. It means that no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the hand of God to save them. And our hearts either harden with rebellion or they soften with obedience. Harden with rebellion or soften with obedience. You might say, well, pastor, if I soften my heart and I put my faith in Jesus, then are you telling me I have to do these things the Bible says to be saved? No, Jesus did those things. And he died because you did not. But the response in the life of a believer is obedience. Jesus says, those who love me obey my commands. And I cannot obey the commands of God on my own, and neither can you. And that's why God sends the Spirit to convict us when we mess up, the Spirit to strengthen us, to do what we cannot without him, and the church to support us, not in judgment, but in grace and love and in hope and encouraging people to move forward from sin towards obedience, from rebellion towards the truth, from a hardened heart towards a heart that has been softened towards God, which will ultimately lead to obedience. And the reason God warns us is because he doesn't want us to experience these things. He wants to tell us so that we have an opportunity to repent of sin and to relent from our actions. And these things are to point us to God's love and not point us to fear, but to point us to a reverence and a holy fear and respect of God, a God who can send plagues and judgments and warnings. And to look back at water turned to blood, a mass of frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, locusts, hail, darkness, and the one I forgot. Um, that doesn't even 
compare to the warnings and the signs that are written of, the plagues that are written of in Revelation that very much mirror the plagues of Egypt. Read Revelation, you're like, oh, this makes more sense now because God's been patient for a long time. And eventually he will release wrath and judgment once all have had the opportunity to turn, to repent, and to trust in Christ, to pick up their cross and follow him, to die to themselves and to live in him. So God, I thank you for, in in a weird way, God, thank you that these plagues fell on Egypt. God, none of us here are above these things happening to us. Thank you, God, that though you sent these things, you were patient towards the people they affected. Thank you, God, that with the same hand that inflicted the plagues, you also ceased the plagues. God, as we look around at the world today, we see warnings and signs and judgment and plagues and discipline and consequences for our actions. May our hearts not grow hard and bitter and rebellious as we see these things take place, but instead, as you have said, let us look to the sky, knowing that our redemption draws near. God, for every believer here, everyone who's put their trust and their faith in you, I ask in the name of Jesus that they would repent of sin, come back to close relationship with you, to continuously die to their flesh, to live in obedience to you. And God, for those who do not know you, I ask in the name of Jesus that you too would convict them of sin, show them your great love and grace toward them in Christ. Pray that you would show them their need for a Savior that can only be found in you and give them faith to trust in you. Because, God, it's not your will that they should perish, but instead come to repentance. God, it's your desire to spare them from judgments to come and just like Israel, to lead them into the life and the land that is to come in you. Both in paradise with you following our death and in heaven and earth with you for eternity. Thank you, God, for your perfect plan throughout history. God, let us trust in you. And though, God, we may pray and ask for these plagues and these warnings and these signs to cease that we're experiencing, more than that, God, just remind us of your presence. Just allow us to go through these things with great strength and and great faith in you as we experience your favor on our lives, even in these difficult times. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.